Welcome to the Cultured Chameleon Podcast. My name is Eugene, and I'm here with my co-host, Lucas. And we are here to talk about their cultural experiences, mental health topics, and theological and philosophical topics as well. We hope you enjoy the show. Are you guys on camera? Because that's cute. Yeah, we are on camera. Oh. <laughs> 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 Welcome to the Culture Chameleon Podcast. I am here with my co-host Eugene, um, and we have a special guest today. It is none other than the person who birthed me, my mother, uh, and she will always hold that over me. Um, that we time. were womb mates. Womb mates. Yeah. Yes. Um, and also, uh, technically, kind of like a second mother to Eugene as well, not out of the womb. <laughs> Not woo meets, but I think something that I want to mention in this podcast that I forgot to mention in the other podcast about Christmas is it felt like having a second family, being in Virginia, and just hanging out with you guys, especially for the holidays. I remember you guys always invited me for Thanksgiving, Christmas, New Year's, and so I'm very blessed to know you and almost have you feels like a second mother. But not really. And I feel like this is something that TCKs kind of go through. It's like, yeah, about these other sets of parents that look out for you and make sure you have food. You always <laughs> you always make sure that I have plenty of food when I leave your house. So, Even you're like, no, no, it's okay. And I'm like, no. And then deep down inside, I'm like, oh, I'm so glad that she insisted. <laughs> Just like remove some of the guilt. And it's great because I, I was a student and didn't have a lot of food. But this isn't about me. And we're glad to have you on our podcast. So... Today, we get to listen to Capri and about her wonderful experiences doing a lot of counseling work, especially in Germany and, and the States. And the States, right? Yeah. And Capri, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and just let the listen, give the listeners a little bit of who you are and your experiences? Sure. Before I do that, though, so I love this podcast because I've watched these two from when they first started their master's program till today. Um, and I like listening to the podcast because I can hear their um, counseling techniques. <laughs> and they're very good. Yeah, really good. I feel like we're being a little analyzed. In a positive way. In a positive way. No, it's like a lot of speaker, listener, clarifying. You know, it's good. It's all good. Um, so I am Luke's mom. I have three children. He's the oldest, our only boy. I have two daughters, Katarina and Anika. We chose their names so that both sets of grandparents would be able to say them. So my parents are Mexican. Ingo's parents are German. So to clarify, so my mother's mother came across the border when she was about three or four. So fleeing the Mexican Revolution, they came across. And so my mom was born in San Antonio. So she's an American citizen. My father, his mother fled Mexico when she was a teenager with her family from the Mexican Revolution. Um, and now my grandmother, my dad's mom, has eight kids that lived. There's some other things in there. My dad is the youngest. Her father was ill while she was pregnant 
she went back to Mexico, had him there. So he's the only one in the family, only one of the kids who's a Mexican citizen. So for whatever reason, he did not become an American citizen until he was 18 and joined the military. And none of us knew that until he passed, like right before he passed away, um, like all this information came out of like, what? (laughs) (laughs) Had no idea. Um, So anyway, so my parents grew up in very culturally Mexican homes. Spanish is spoken there, the whole deal. When they had us, I was four years old. We're living in San Antonio. I mean, this is like, this is the barrio. Like, we're just like a bunch of street kids, <laughs> like running the street. When I, when I drove back there, I'm like, who lets their kid run in this? This is insane. So I come inside and I'm like, mama, we need bun. So we literally just take out a whole thing of like Wonder Bread, take it outside and everybody gets a slice. She goes, what's the English word? I'm like, I don't know. So she tells my dad, and he goes, from this day on, we will not speak Spanish to those children. Because when he went to school, he did not speak a lick of English for mm-hmm. kindergarten. And that was back in the day when they would hit you. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, but you know, so anyway, so that's like, that's when I say Mexican in that sense, like I am first and second generation. And I'm going to say it the way I understand it, not the way that TikTok tells me the way I need to say it. I'm first and second generation Mexican. Um, and I have, it's probably after right around the middle of college, I became very comfortable about that. And I know this is also a thing. It's cool to be Latina now, but not back in the 80s and the 90s. Definitely not the 70s and the 60s. So everybody's like, oh, no, it's so cool. I love to hear about other cultures. That's not the way it was back then. Not in San Antonio. <laughs> So anyways, that's just a little bit like, I don't know, like I could seriously, I go on on this tangent forever. So, well, because I, I know you for about 26 years now, <laughs> so there's so much more, um, but already there's a lot encapsulated in those, in the generational family dynamics that have kind of transpired over, over the, the decades. Um, so there's already so much that we can unpack. And for those who might be curious or at least listening to this, um, it may not be like a third culture kid in the way that we conceptualize third culture kid. It's not a military kid. It's not a missionary kid yet. Yeah. I was like, well, hold on. (laughs) Or a pastor's kid yet. Um, Or like a business kid, but it's more of a kind of like the, the population that we identify as like uh, refugees or migrants or immigrants who are coming over, but they have similar experiences to third culture kids because there's a, um, a difference of, of cultures coming together when you, when you go from one country to the other. And also when you have cultural values from the family from one country, and then the kids adopt other cultural values from the new home slash host country. Correct. So that all kind of comes together to, well, I guess the question is, you know, what is a TCK then? So (laughs) So my understanding when it was first, that terminology was first came into my purview. 
the way I understood it was this is a third, uh, so two parents of the same culture, so, you know, or they could have two separate cultures, but we'll just go with the easy one. Two parents from the same culture move somewhere with their child and now they've created a third culture because they're in a new country. So that's one. And the other one was what I was like, that feels like that's me, is two parents from a culture and you're living in another country and, but yet we're also a part of the country. So that is that you, yeah, okay, that is an immigrant story. Um, but I think it's, all, I, I wanna say this too, and I, I just don't know if, I'm sure there's somebody who's already written a book on this. There's a generational thing here. So I'm Gen X completely. So Gen X is 1964 to, I don't know. I don't, I don't look at the younger ones, but you know. <laughs> Before the millennials came along. Okay. So Gen Xers, our parents were either the silent generation or boomers. My parents are silent generation. So our upbringing was hell. It was like, if the, I'm not lying about this, this is a legit thing. Okay. I was in sixth grade. We had a puppy puppy bit my lip open like it bit it open like there's a scar open my dad was doing a plumbing job I don't know where my mom was so I go in there I've got like a sock on it because I'm hoping to like pinch it together because I'm going to get in trouble right because that's what happens like you expect your parents to be upset at you oh not expect like that's going to happen like you know so I finally go in there because it's not smishing together so I'm like oh I could bleed to death so I go over there, I tell him, he looks at it and he's like, wait there, let me finish this. Like, mind you, like the, it's like, you can see my teeth. Oh man. So he gets on the phone with our doctor and the doctor says, go get Rachel's sewing kit. So he like, you know, does like, you know, what do you call it when you, you Patches. sterilize it. So he sterilized the needle yeah. and the thread. He lays me on the bed, he sews it up, <laughs> gives me a big sock with ice to put on it. And then he's like, I still gotta go to the <laughs> I gotta go to the store to get more plumbing parts. I went to a party later that day. It was a birthday party. So that's that's Gen X. <laughs> we'll sew you up with the sewing kit. That story just encapsul- encapsulates the That's experience. it right there. That that and like, you know, you sprain your ankle. And it's like, okay, finish mowing the lawn and then come in and I'll look at it. That's it. That's Gen X completely. Okay. So anyway, so what I'm saying that is, so when you have these parents coming in from different countries or even military, like military Gen Xers, you're considered a military brat and your behavior would determine, had a a very huge impact on whether your dad was going to get a promotion or not. So, yeah, there's a there's a lot of stuff with that. Of like, so when you're talking about older TCKs, where did well, like what? Because we don't recognize that. So when we look at you guys and like, oh wow, you guys get each other. You have a name for each other. That's awesome. That's wonderful. So so basically, we live in the good times of TCKs. 
Yeah, to like, I walk to school five miles uphill in the snow each way. That's that's what this is. <laughs> You're like this experience could be so much different. <laughs> but I think it's I think it's so when I look at it, I'm like, oh, I fit that, but I but I don't because of the generational thing is what I'm saying. There's so yeah. that generational piece plays in there. It sounds like there's an added layer to the immigrant experience, namely because of the generation that you're brought up in. And nobody gave a shit. Yeah, you get that to be tough, it sounds like. If you're sewing up your lip and just moving on with with the needle and thread. I still think there was just so, there were so many other things. Like, so when we were setting up for this, I kept going, Profundo, profundo, uno, dos, tres, right? Because my dad, this is where the missionary kid part comes in. So my dad was a head evangelist for this group called Time for Christ. So Time for Christ was a medical missions. It started in the mid-60s in San Antonio. So it's a bunch of doctors getting together, and you go down into the interior. I'm not talking a city. This is not a city. Like... Days before you even get to the place, lo- roads no longer exist. You know, these are dirt paths. I, I grew up knowing things like hairpin. Uh, everybody needs to get out of the vehicle because if you don't, when when we move over to let this truck come by, because it's a one lane with a cliff on one side, that was a normal experience. That was not a one-time scary story. That was at every time you go to every time you go, some vehicle's gonna fall off the cliff with something. Someone's gonna some shooting's gonna happen. Something bad, you know. So you're always prepared. Okay. So anyway, my dad's a head evangelist. Uh, my first mission trip was I was in third grade. We went three times a year: Easter, Christmas, summer. From I do not remember Christmas before going to Mexico. I have no memory of it. So it's kind of weird. Anyway, so he, he would set up the mic because he was going to preach and then show the Jesus movie from, you know, this is the 70s. So it was not as great as The Chosen. So he, he would stand there and go, profundo, profundo, which from what I understand is not even a word. Uno, dos, tres, right? Mm-hmm. So the job he gave me and my brother was to plug things in. Now, let's just think about this. This is the 70s. There's nothing's grounded. Shocks. Oh, Electric shocks. So, because he had gotten shocked. He didn't want to get shocked anymore. So he made my brother and I do it. To this day, I get really nervous when I plug things in. Understandably. So, so that's just like, that's like, I, I think about those things of just like, my dad was... <laughs> tough guy that anyway so okay so i my mk experience starts with that but my dad was also a pastor so when i was born he was in seminary and so he's in seminary in brownwood no 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 he did undergrad at howard Payne. that's in brownwood then he went to um well the seminaries there in fort worth i, I don't know it's southern baptist there's two of them now though but it was one um, and so then he was a pastor of this little Mexican church. And then we moved to San Antonio. Then he was a pastor there. Then he was the director of the touch program 
I was in kindergarten when he started that one. So that stands for Transforming Others Under Christ's Hand. It was a faith-based methadone clinic. I grew up with heroin addicts. Some of them lived in our house. When we were, my brother and I were in elementary, sometimes they would call us, Jacob and Capri Ortega, please come to the office. That means somebody threatened to kidnap us because they couldn't get their methadone for the week. That was my childhood. So we've got electrocution, (laughs) vehicles falling off cliffs in the interior of Mexico, and then this stuff. (laughs) Just that, that's my, that's insanity. I look back now. What what was your understanding as, um, as a kid then of what was going on, let's just say for the, the touch program? That's a, that's a really great question. Cause I, I just realized I'm like, Oh, I don't have an answer for that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so my dad, my dad wrote a book along with, uh, Dr. Ernest Gregory, who was like a father figure for him. So they, Dr. Ernest Gregory was part of time for Christ and the touch program. And he's the one that hired my dad for the touch program. So this book is very fascinating for me to read because I read it after my dad died, of how much my dad's work work ethic was amazing, Um, which (laughs) I just think about it. I'm like, okay, so, but his work ethic was amazing, but there was, it was just never enough money, right? So, um, so how did it affect, we were just glad that dad had a job because there was a time (laughs) I was in second grade and so something happened. The touch program had to close down. So there was a Piggly Wiggly down the street from our house. So my dad would walk to Piggly Wiggly and he was one of those people that had like now it's probably different, but you would put the date on the cans for expiration. And so he had a belt had the, the, that in it, I thought it was the coolest thing in the world. So, um, he had that job for a while, so they they had like a bring your parent to school day to talk about their job. <laughs> we had dentists. I remember there was a dentist, John Daggett, an OBGYN. Um, I can't remember who the other ones were. And my dad with the thingy. He was the hit. That's why everybody wanted to have the, da- the date on their hand. That was the best profession, it sounds like. For a second grader, I guess so. <laughs> we didn't want to hear about the other stuff. So, so growing up, like I never knew anything other than dad is in ministry. So for us growing up, and this is something that we've had to take apart, the three of us kids, after my dad died, of just this is how we see the world because of him. So everything in his life was ministry. We, we went to Piggly Wiggly and, um, there was a family sitting outside. Now, mind you, okay, this is the seventies. So we're a Mexican family. We're a Brown family. There was a white family sitting outside of Piggly Wiggly and the man lost his job. What does my dad do? He gets in the car and he says, that family's going to come and live with us. He didn't ask my mother. He didn't think of like how that was going to affect us. My mother was livid. <laughs> I don't know how long they lived in our house, but they lived in our house. Like we all lived in one room 
because my mom was like, nobody's sleeping in any other room but this bedroom. So we all lived in there. She had a lock on the door. And the family lived in the rest of the, I can't remember how long they lived with us, but that was my dad. Like, I'm going to feed these people because God will provide somehow. That was, which is like, no. Which again is different when Ingo and I were pastors for that brief time. <laughs> what we were told was feed your family first. Take care of your family first because nobody's going to take care of you. So you got to take care of yourself first. That was not my dad's thing. It was take care of everybody else first and God will touch these people to take care of you. Now that didn't happen. Not, I mean, it did sometimes, but not all the time. Like sometimes miraculously there was, I remember one Christmas mom brought us to the door. You know, the house, mm -hmm. the whole front porch was filled with presents for Christmas. It was the best Christmas ever. I actually don't remember that story. But because that wasn't you. <laughs> I know, but I don't remember you ever talking about that. <laughs> you've you've shared a lot of stories in my life. I don't remember that story. <laughs> so I'm gonna say this just a shout out to all the cousins. Um, my sister and I would do this cousins camp thing, right? So you find out all the free stuff that's going on in San Antonio and we would like plan it out. But we would torture the children unknowingly by telling them stories of our childhood. <laughs> <laughs> like you have it so much better. At least we didn't hit you. <laughs> so like it could be way worse. So anyway, so I, I am a missionary kid. I am a pastor's kid. Um, but we lived in the States. So, but I still consider myself as that. And when I went to, so I went, I Grew up in San Antonio, and then I went to Liberty because my pastor said, I have a scholarship for you, and I just wanted to get away from my parents. Um, and my dad wouldn't let me go to Biola because he said only heathens live in California. <laughs> Your dad has a lot of strong opinions, it sounds like. Yeah, like the King James Version is the only version. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Still had that. <laughs> also, a meal is not a meal if there's no bread. I mean, I feel that way about meat sometimes. Oh, it's not a meal if there's no meat? Yeah. He would he would agree with that too. Yes. He would have agreed with that. Absolutely. Yeah. So did you find yourself, because you did ministry work later, re-understanding like these values and how to approach that? So it probably wasn't until I started training to be an EMDR therapist that it all made sense. Oh, this is really interesting. How did that impact that? So, okay, so the EMDR training that I did was attachment somatic focus. So I'll break that down. So attachment, so I never, most people are familiar with the four attachment styles. So yes, I'm giving a nod to that, but it's even more specific. It's what did you do as a child? So we're talking infancy. We're talking like starting around there. So what did you do as a child to feel connected to your caregiver? So it's whatever sense of connection you felt, security and safety. But and that even if you're in an abusive home, there's still like there's an element. There's these tiny windows where you might have 
a sense of some sort of connection or safety. So, you know, I always want to say that because there's some of us like, I mean, my dad was very open about how he was with us kids. He was, it was a physically abusive household until I think I was in seventh grade. And then he had a come to Jesus moment and never hit us again. Um, so sometimes his, you know, sometimes it was in that like biblical thing of like, I'm going to spank you till you cry. And then I'm so sorry that hurt me more than you. Okay. So sometimes it was that. Um, but sometimes it wasn't. And it was just because he was very angry, which finding out more about his life after he died, it's like, okay, that's why you were so angry. Um, but he really, from seventh grade on, he really tried to make up for stuff that he did. He wasn't perfect. I mean, he still did stuff where I was like, oh, you just did not say that. <laughs> but, you know, again, he's a silent generation or so. He's going to say stuff. So... <laughs> I think it's interesting they call it a silent generationer <laughs> yet <laughs> you have lots to say because they didn't I don't even know I think it's because it's the silent generation greatest generation I can't remember how that goes but the greatest generations are, is the one that fought in the World War II and the silent ones are the ones that were born in World War II something like that anyway um, so my brother and my sister and I one of the ways that we realize that we cope is through service. Your worth is determined by your service. That's not healthy. Real quick, when you're saying you're coping, you're coping with your trauma responses or just everything? So I would say in our case, absolutely, because that our response to our world, which <laughs> looking back now, I'm like, oh yeah, all that was a trauma reaction. Um, like we're just surviving. There was a, even my parent, like one of the things I realized too, and now I go to a therapist who is an EMDR therapist, um, and she, we were doing a memory and she said, tell me how old your, your parents are. In there, so I'm like telling her their age, and she goes, "No, emotionally." And I put him as a teenager, and she goes, "Really? You think they're a teenager?" Just think about that for a moment. And as I sat with it and letting the memory run, I'm like, "Oh my goodness, they're toddlers." And she was like, "That's the emotional age. So you're having children raise children, and I'm the first. So the guinea pig, you know, you guys are first too, right? I do know. I think Lucas does. <laughs> yeah. Your parents are at their youngest. They don't know what they're doing. <laughs> Financially, it's not for the best case scenario. So yeah, it's kind of just a, it's, you know, we just applaud ourselves that we survived. Yeah. So in that sense, looking at that, it was, there's not, there's I, I also heard this too, which clicked. I always wondered there's whenever I would do my own therapy or I'm talking to other people who didn't have substance abuse issues, but had a traumatic, abusive upbringing. And so it's like, how did we not do that? Well, let's look at what we did do. So we're all in some sort of service or a workaholic 
or I have like a really busy taxing job. That's what we did. So you work. You're trying to prove your worth. So that's how we regulate. So I was like, oh, that's what it is. So you're like you, I, I can't take credit for any of what I just said. It's from that Gab, Gabriel Mata, Mate, M-A-T-E. Uh, Mator or. The, M-A-T-E with the accent over the E. Yeah, yeah, yeah. he's the, um, he's a trauma specialist or ADHD specialist. I don't, I don't know. We'll link him. He's yeah. a good, he's, he's a good person to listen fantastic. to. Fantastic. He's the one that also says that, you know, just because you guys have, and I'm putting that in quotes, have the same parents, they're not the same parents. So I was like, that's so true. That And that clicked for me too, because I was always wondering, like, why did my siblings do things differently than I did? And I'd be like, we had the same parents. No, we didn't. We did not. If my sister was allowed to do things that I was not allowed to do which still annoys me, as you can see, just how, how vehemently I said that. Still annoys me today. <laughs> Are you good if I move to being a mother of TCKs? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So being married to Ingo, who is a German, and I like to say he's a legal alien. <laughs> <laughs> just a really funny story here. Okay. So have you ever been to Texas and you've driven down to the border. So wow. when you're driving down to the border, you just drive all the way down, there's no stops. But when you drive back north, in Foul Furious, there is a checkpoint. Okay, so I obviously, like if you look at this video, you're gonna go, what? She's Mexican? She's so light. Yeah, I know. Um, I was not always this light. I found out that my people, we get lighter as we get older. So I was light to begin with. Both of my parents are light. So I just lighter. Um, so Lucas is the only child that I have that looks <laughs> color wise like me. The girls are blonde. They're hueritas. They're white. So when we would come up, I had to have their pass, their uh, birth certificates with me to prove they were my children. They would wave Ingo on and stop me. At When we applied for his green card, they pulled us in and were very angry. And the guy slammed on the desk and he goes, where were you naturalized? I was like, what? Uh, I didn't know what to do. And I'm like, I... I was born in Brownwood, Texas. I'm a United States citizen. He goes, where were you naturalized? I'm like, excuse me. I was born in Brown. Like, even listen to me. There's no accent. And then he looked at it. I'm like, can you look at my passport? He looked at it and he goes, oh, ma'am, I'm so sorry. Yesterday, we naturalized or whatever, like we swore in a bunch of Latin women. We thought you just picked this guy up off the street to try to get him a green card. That sounds a little backwards, but I get Right. So Ingo loves to tell those stories all the time because he's the one that's illegal that's, or legal. That's what I was going to say is the funny part of this story because you're the one with American citizenship. Right. I'm his way in. 
and I'm the one that's being questioned. Anyway, so with bringing us together, there was a, there is, we have now with having Lucas, we created a third culture because we're combining our two. So even when we lived in the Valley, um, which the, and I'm going to say this too, Texas is huge. San Antonio and the Valley are not the same thing. The Valley is its own thing. So that was a culture shock for me. <laughs> of like, Even Texas has its own different cultures. Botanas, I was like, what is that? By the way, if you ever get to the Valley, you go to a Mexican restaurant, order a botana. You can get fajita or chicken. They're going to come out with this humongous platter, and it's going to be meat, beans, nachos, cheese, jalapenos on the side, lettuce and tomato. It's all on one. And tortillas, freshly made, by the way, tortillas there. And you just take off of that and put it on your little plate. And the tortillas just keep coming. So good. So that, and the other thing is, if you ever move to the Valley, um, when you have a birthday party, you need to plan for extra because somebody that you invite is going to have visitors and they're coming. So you need to have extra gift bags and you need to have one cooler for adults and one cooler for children. So, and then people stay, they stay the whole time. That's the Valley. So with the kids growing up in the Valley, so we're trying to still do some of the German traditions, which the German traditions, I was, there's so many. So when you guys were having the Christmas thing, I was like, Lucas Abel. I, I only talked about one thing. I know there's more. You talked about the most commercial capitalistic <laughs> thing, the Weihnachtsmacht. Your middle name's Abel? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it is. <laughs> I feel like I'm learning so much about you now. <laughs> Christmas in Germany is a verb. So for it starts with first advent. And that is where you start it. And advent is not just lighting the candle. No, you literally need to have a present for every day. So when the kids were little, when they were really little, we just had the candles when we were in Texas. We just did candles. Um, and we, of course, we celebrate Christmas Eve, Heiligabend, and then Christmas Day is a family day. Okay, so when we moved to Berlin in 2008, now the German thing is going to get even harder. Like, I mean, not harder. It's like, how do I say that? It was like on a slow train before. Now it's like a fast train. You better catch up. So the first, the first advent, um, when I realized like, oh my goodness, this is a thing. Like we need to have presents for every day. So what we did that first year is we just did what I thought was normal. Cause again, this is not my culture, a chocolate, a little chocolate, right? Poor kids get to school. Well, you tell them, what did you? I've must've blocked this memory. Cause I don't remember this at all. I remember you coming home. I don't know. So we were, in, Lucas was in sixth grade when we first moved there. So probably seventh or eighth grade. He was like, mama, other kids get presents, real presents. I'm like, what do you mean? He goes, one kid got a phone. <laughs> I'm like, that's not happening. These are some nice families over here. <laughs> that is not happening. Um, so I, I am, I upped it a little bit. So on the Sundays, 
you would get a little <laughs> bit chocolates. of a, you get a little bit bigger of a present, right? And the other days, and then I made them take turns. Like everybody gets a turn to open it. Um, we tried a bunch of different things because I mean, we were missionaries. Where are you gonna get the money? I know what that's like. Right. Not only that, there's St. Nick's Day. That's another day of presents. That's December 6th. Put your shoes outside the door. So I had to have, not only did I have to have stuff set up for every day from starting from Advent, starting from Advent to Christmas Eve, but I had to have something to put in the shoes for St. Nick. And again, the presents that other kids were getting were presents, presents. These kids got a St. Nick chocolate, maybe some socks. I think I might have put like Burt's Bees because Burt's Bees was like a, a high top item. It was. Yeah. yeah. So, and then you have, then you have High League Abend. So now you've got the real presents. Then you have Christmas Day and then the second Christmas Day. So that that's a lot of stuff. Not And then you got to do the baking <clears throat> and the Christmas caroling. And the Vinox mocked. So it's like, it is a verb. And you are going to Christmas all the way to the end. And it's a lot of fun. But going into that from the valley, which was like, you know, we didn't have to do, we just had to light the candles and read a verse on the Advent Sundays. Now I got to come up with stuff on a missionary <laughs> budget. <laughs> to be fair, I, I, I remember being okay with everything i felt pretty grateful i think that's what i recall at least. you guys were really very cool but we are we were also pretty open about our limitations um so ingo <laughs> ingo grew up really wealthy i grew up really poor so christmas for us was underwear and socks. If you were lucky, you get one article of clothing, right? <laughs> so, okay, I'm going to say this now because I'm going to be 56 this month, so I, I don't really care anymore. Um, I used to tell kids in school that we, that we saved all our money to go on the mission trips. No, we didn't. We didn't have any money. <laughs> no saving money. So they'd be like, oh, what did you get for Christmas? I'm like, you know, I just got the necessities. Oh, why? Oh, because we put all our money into going into a mission trip. You got what I did there, right? I'm going to shame you for asking me because I'm embarrassed that I didn't get anything. <laughs> just turning it around. Yeah, that was, was petty from a young age. So so go moving to Berlin really, um, so the, that, like I said, the, the Rio Grande Valley is a culture. And then moving them from that very Mexican, hospitable, loving, inviting culture where everybody, you know, you include everybody as family and come on in and I don't have to know your name and here have a plate to Berlin was jarring for the kids. Um, I thought I was in heaven. Like this is the most <laughs> historical city ever. There was a day, this is when Lucas was in sixth grade, it was in the winter, and Lucas and I were walking on Tel Tawadan. We were right there in front of the Woolworths, and I was like, isn't this amazing? It's probably in January when everything's gray and ugly. And I'm like, 
everywhere you step, it's historical. And you looked at me and you said, this is my living hell. (laughs) (laughs) So (laughs) granted to say all three children had an adjustment disorder. (laughs) Anika was like, I think she was sick. She expressed suicidal ideation a couple of times. At six? Yes, she did. Uh, Katarina like withdrew. Katarina had had it really bad. She She had a physically abusive teacher. Um, and Katha is my most nonverbal kid. So Lucas and Anika are very verbal. Like they're going to, oh my Lord, they're going to tell you everything. Like I'm just going to talk to you and tell you everything that's going on in my head and processes that out. Like I'm just going to figure out what my feeling is right here. And, and they both are very expressive about their emotions, not Katha. So it took us a while to figure out that something wasn't going well. Um, so, but that, the transition for the three of them, not only that, the school that I chose, unbeknownst to me, was a extremely academic school. I chose it because it was a combination of a German-American school. So it was created by German and American parents so that their kids could go to school together after the war. And it celebrated both cultures. And it was free. Why not? (laughs) Not knowing that this was going to stretch all three of them because they came again from the valley where Lucas was praised for writing. You want to tell him about your first written thing from Miss Bucky? I'd love to hear it. I don't remember what she wrote, but I do remember my first time going to sixth grade in Berlin. And the one thing that I was really happy about was that everybody read. Well, nobody stopped or paused or struggled through the words. This is sixth grade. So came from fifth grade into sixth. And so I was like, wow, I think I'm where I meant to be. (laughs) Um, But the writing was very challenging. Miss Baki was a wonderful sixth grade teacher, very strict, but she loved frogs and she cared about her students as a sixth grader, a very strict teacher is a terrible person. Um, and she would write quotes, not like Dr. Seuss quotes, like Mm-mm. philosophical quotes, uh, historical quotes. And she just wrote them on the board every morning and you would spend 20 or 15 minutes writing that quote in cursive and then writing a response to it. And she would grade it every week or every day. And, um, in the valley, the best thing to do was to write as quickly as possible and get it done as fast as possible, any assignment that you can, because that was cool. And in Berlin, the coolest thing possible was if you wrote a well thought out answer <laughs> to a quote. And um, I still have my little journals and you can, it was like two sentences. And then over the sixth grade year, you, they got longer and longer. And the cursive got better too, so that was good. Because you had to go to I tutoring. Because I had to tutor how to cursive. Because <laughs> I didn't do that in the valley. So Katha and Lucas had to go to handwriting tutor. <laughs> this, this is the school I chose. One of Lucas's things that he wrote was he wrote Once Upon a Time. Oh. And she took 
her red marker and underlined it. And she said something like, and it was, it was harsh again. It, she's not a bad person. It was, it's a culture shock. So we were coming from the Valley where everything is just like, I mijo, it's okay. You know, and mijo, mija, papi, mommy, the whole Family. like, yes, not there. So it was never start a composition with a something like a fantasy beginning as once upon a time. And I remember reading it and just going, what have I done? What have I done? <laughs> so I think a good question would be, how did you and Ingo, Papa, um, transition the whole family to go overseas? How did you guys prepare for that? at all because you guys both have had master's degrees in counseling at that time Ingo had his in marriage he and family had he had just started his doctor program by the way oh before okay. we left okay so the question still stands when you guys were thinking about transitioning how did you guys think about how do we do this as a as a family from one country to the other so, so one advantage that we had was that you guys were somewhat familiar because we visited. So that was, we took that as like, that's good. I, Inga was really kind enough to say, you pick where we go. So I picked three large cities because I knew, because I'd already lived there and I was like, I know what I'm going to need. And whatever I need, I know that's what the kids will need. So we need a place that has a large airport so we can get out of here when we need to. And we need to have a large expat community so that we have support. So that's what I looked for. And the third thing was, and we don't have the money to pay for private school. And that doesn't look like they have schools like they do in the Valley, like these charter schools. So I need to find a really good school that's not gonna cost a lot of money. <laughs> and I found JFK. And so I was like, great, then we're going to Berlin. That was what, that was it. Now, Ingo and Katha had done, two years prior, had done an exploratory trip to Berlin. So we knew that they needed people there. So, which I still am like, Berlin, I think, I think I'm saying this correctly. Out of all the cities where there are missionaries in Germany, Berlin has the least. I don't get that. Berlin is the coolest city. I've been to the other ones. They're nice, but they're not as cool as Berlin. Plus, living in Germany, you still live cheaper in Berlin than any other city. I mean, now I know other Missionaries came from other places, and when they saw how expensive everything was, they were like, how do you guys do this? Well, how we did it is we became bivocational because that was one of my biggest things. So we, Ingo and I spent six months interviewing. <laughs> they thought they were interviewing us, but we were interviewing them, sending organizations. And I had two criteria. One of them was, I, this is not a twofer. I stand alone, he stands alone. We have the same platform, but we do different things. So this, we're both getting paid here. So we're, it's not a, this, a, you know, it's like a, I want to be recognized as well. Um, so that was one thing. And we wanted to use our psychology degrees. And we were like, this is what we want to do. So we're not church planting. 
We're not going to teach in a school, not doing any of that. We want to do this. But the third thing was, I want to be able to get a job if things go badly, which is exactly what happened when we hit ground. I think the phone's going off. Is it your phone? No, I think it's your phone. <gasps> Can you just turn it off? No one ever calls me. That's <laughs> like who's calling. So, um, so, so in so I growing up and knowing a bunch of missionaries and pastors growing up, I already knew. Um. I already knew things that I was like, we're not going to be your average couple coming in. And what were, what was the vocation? The so, works more, I guess, like, how would you put that pretty generally before you go more specific? So the other thing is we knew nobody was doing what we were doing, but well, that's not true. We didn't know anybody who was do that. We did not know at the time of anybody else that was doing what we were doing. And there was nobody in Berlin doing that. And so what we already knew was, we are going to provide coaching, counseling, and consulting for missionaries and pastors and their dependents on the ground. Originally starting in Berlin, and then it expanded. And, and over the course of time, we've met other people doing the same thing. Um, but, it's so that type of stuff usually falls under member care, except this isn't member care. <laughs> this is professional therapy. So we wanted to distinguish that. Um, and we wanted to also come alongside organizations of like, we can help you when you have um, like, okay, like take like a campus crusade, they have a different name now, or Athletes for Action. So they've got stenters coming in. So you've got a stenter coming in for like a year or two. So when you've got all these fresh young people coming in, you're going to have, something's going to happen. And so that's where we come in. And so it's great to have somebody on the ground, like, how do I deal with this? And then, and then the things like, they were like, they're things that people aren't talking about because they don't have the resources. And so then you're only getting to talk about those things when you go back on furlough, and that is rape and marital distress. Your kids are depressed. Um, alcoholism, especially for teenagers. You've got these American teenagers who are like, like, you know, I mean, let's just, I don't know how it is in Latin America, but over there, like, uh, you're smoking and uh, cigarettes, tobacco and alcohol is very easy to get. I'd say that's similar to in Latin America. So if, if there's already stuff going on in the home, now your child has access to something that could help them regulate. So one of the mission statements, or it is our mission statement, is a healthy marriage healthy families, healthy church. So if you're just focused on your church being healthy, but you didn't put any attention on your family and your marriage, it's not gonna work. So we were like, your marriage, you have to be healthy then you're in your marriage and your kids, and then whatever your ministry is, is gonna be healthy. So instead of, again, we're talking Gen Xers. So as a Gen Xer, it's the other way around. 
we put on the facade, as soon as you walk out the door, we put on the facade that everything is okay because we're in ministry. So you better, you better behave. Because I'm counting everything that you're doing. And once we get back in the door and we're back inside, now you're going to get it. So I know that's the way it was with military kids my age. I, I've heard the same stories. So, I mean, if you're anybody's interested in what that looked like back in the day, the great Santini, which watch them is awful. Wait, what? The great Santini, Robert Duvall, Robbie Benson, right? And I can't remember the writer's name. I feel bad. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I forgot your name. Um, I really like that perspective. And I think it reminds me of, I think it verse in Timothy that talks about how elders should manage like the household and their the relationship with their spouse and whatnot. I'm curious, what kind of tools do you think are important for families that are abroad and working, like especially for our listeners that, because as you mentioned, there's a lot that comes in access to a lot of substance use at a younger age, sometimes in different countries that are other than North America. And then this added layer of like, how do I adjust? And then you have a bunch of young parents who, who knows how they were raised and how those values were passed down. What are some some tips or tools or some things that you've seen that have been really like helpful? So one thing I would say, you're all we're all gonna make mistakes. So let's just celebrate the failure. And, and as I'm saying that, I'm like, oh, that's so stupid. Um, but it's not. <laughs> but so. it's not though, and that's why we want to know your your thoughts. So so this this is a very recent thing. So I mean, I'm just going to say this right now. Like this is not how Lucas and Katha and Anika grew up. Okay, so um, Ingo sent Katharina a video not too long ago about celebrating failure. So if you just think about it, when you learned how to tie your shoe, or even like think about being like really young and learning how to put your clothes on. <laughs> Right. <laughs> right. So, you know, you got them backwards. You maybe button the shirt up wrong yeah. and shoelaces, tying shoelaces. I mean, because you guys are of that age where Velcro was just coming in. Right. Well, I'll be honest, my dress shoes have no laces. <laughs> well, probably not now, but back then, unless they were loafers back then, you had to tie your shoe. So that, that was a that's a very difficult thing to learn. And so you're, it's mistake after mistake after mistake until you finally get it. And also when you're tying shoes, there's several ways to do it. And you've got to figure out which way works best for you. Okay, so what would have been fantastic is when Lucas and Anika and Katha were learning how to tie their shoe. After every failed attempt, I would be like, look at you. What did you figure out? What didn't go great? Great. You figured out something that didn't work. What are you going to do different? Wonderful. Go have another try. Never did that, ever. They would have been so much better academically. <laughs> In sports, the whole thing, whole thing would have just been better. So that's one thing is like, even as I'm looking at it now, I'm like, oh my goodness. So many things. So many things I can do better with the knowledge that I have now all right, so you didn't have it then. It's done. It's over. Do better now. Just do better now. Don't lament over it. It's not going to bring anything. Apologize to your kids for screwing up, but then make it better. And I got a second chance because I got a grandkid. So I get a second chance to do it right. That's what they're supposed to be doing. Okay, so that was, that's the first thing. It was like, you're going to mess up. 
you're, you're gonna like, we thought we did everything right. We were told you have to move now. Lucas is right at that window. If you don't move now, it's going to be harder. We should have moved way before we should have moved. We, we didn't, it didn't happen. What age was that again? He was, were you 12 or 11? I was 11 turning 12. And that's true because the literature does say that now, not back then, but literature does show more that there's a, there's a specific time that's better to move because there's less emotional distress and all of that jazz that comes with it. And when we moved and what the literature says was in that ripe age of where that for me, <laughs> at least for me, yeah. um, Katha and Anika, I think obviously still went through stuff. I mean, so that's not, oh, what's the word? It's not never going to happen. If you move at a certain time, it's still going to happen. It's just going to be different. Correct. And maybe last a little bit less. Right. So it was, so that, that's like, again, like you're going to make mistakes. Um, there could be a mistake on, we, we moved too late. We moved too early. Uh, we didn't get the right housing. Uh, there's just so many things there. So it's just going to happen. Keeping the important things important, just Maslow's hierarchy of needs. <laughs> Let's just go with the basics, shelter, food, <laughs> you know, it, Make you know, don't sacrifice like necessities and necessities. I'm talking shelter and nutritious food and safety. One of the places they wanted to send us was the Gaza Strip. No freaking way was that going to happen. I was like, I would just looked at them when they sent that offer in. I'm like, are you kidding? I have little kids. We are not moving to the Gaza Strip to build a church not happening like that's not even our job skill so anyway so uh, some of the things that we did i'm really proud of us for doing we held to our guns and we're like these are the things we want to go to germany that's that's where we're going to go because we both because he's german that gives us an in i speak german this is good this is what we're going to do there is a vacancy in Berlin that needs to be filled. We're going to fill it. And the other thing was, and we want to do what God's placed on our hearts, not what fits your mission. So we're not church planting because that's not us. And any of the other things that they, all the other stuff, I was like, did you even look at our degrees? Like nowhere does mine say education anywhere. I've never been an educator. No. Okay. So that, that I would just say, like, just, just be kind to yourself. What's important to you? Um, and what's great about millennials and Gen Zers, you guys ask for what you need better than we did. You're better than we are. So when Ingo and I were asking for what we wanted, I remember struggling with that of like, I don't have the right to ask for this. And Ingo being German, he was like, yes, we do. <laughs> I still think looking back, you know, we, we, we couldn't, we can't change the age thing. Um, but I, 
there's some things that happened when we were there that I know that that was really hurtful to the kids, but they all, they don't remember well the things that were hurtful that happened in the Valley. So hurtful things are going to happen wherever you are. So in that sense, I'm like the kids, I look at it and this is, this, this is a military thing. You were fortunate to have experienced several different cultures. So part of what I say to, what I say to most people that I talk to that are TCK. So when I, when I say TCK, I'm saying somebody under the age of 18. So when I'm talking to somebody under the age of 18, I want to acknowledge, yes, it's really difficult. Like I'm not making fun of you that you're sad because you can't find Peter Pan peanut butter because that's important. Or I remember Lucas, the first year he was there, him and our next door neighbor got their money together and they went to the toy store and they couldn't buy like, what was it? A water gun or something. It was some sort of, it was a gun, but it was like a water gun or a Nerf gun and they couldn't buy it because he wasn't 15 or something like that. Yes. Now again, remember we were coming from Texas <laughs> I don't know what other states in the U.S. There maybe there's another state in the U.S. that has something like that, but Berlin was just like the when Lucas came back, he was upset. He had tears in his eyes because the, he felt shamed. Now, shame in German culture is a thing. It's pedagogically okay to shame when teaching. I don't get it. I'm never gonna get it, but it's a thing. So it's a cultural thing. And you, I, there's a word called schimpf. I mean, I think I was schimpfed every day. I just made that a, an American word, by the way. I just used Denglish because I put an ED on the end of it. <laughs> but it's like when someone's scolding you for something, right? Like, you, and you don't know them. So I would get Lucas, poor thing. Like he was like, mama, I, I would go to school with him every morning and pick him up every day because Lucas looked like a man. The child had a mustache at 12. So for him getting on public transportation, he didn't look like a 12 year old. So the bus drivers would, would shimpf and yell at him because he didn't use his bus pass correctly. He didn't have the right change. So I would get on the bus with them. And then eventually we graduated to, he was like, I'm going to go in this door and you go in that door. And then he would go upstairs on the double deckers away from us. Right. And then eventually he would, you know, it was good on his own. But that to me, like, even though all the other parents around me were saying, you're coddling them, um, you know, things like that. Okay. So these are either Germans or other Europeans, all of us American moms who were married to German men. And there were a good handful of us that were Latinas. We did that for our children. We were like, I'm glued to your side <laughs> until you don't need me. And then I still might still be here <laughs> just because. So, uh, so for, for missionary kids, hopefully you have a really good organization that has member care specifically for you, but know that. And I would say if there's any missionary kid listening, you want to contact Lucas or myself we do have, we do now know people on the ground that are probably in your country that could give you support. 
mental health wise. But mental health also means I want to feel supported. For, for military kids, you have something fantastic called an MFLAC. That's a military and family life counselor. As long as your parent is active duty, you have access to that person. So you can go, like if, if you're listening and your parent is Navy, okay, go to Fleet and Family. There's an MFLAC there. <clears throat> There's an MFLAC at your youth center, your after school, and your CDC. They're everywhere. And they'll have a little badge. It says MFLAC on it. Think wank wank, Aflac, just with an M. We get paid, like I'm an MFLAC. We get paid to talk. I get, I get paid to listen to whatever you want to talk about as long as you're not a harm to yourself or others. And we can talk all day. I'll be your best friend. That's what an MFLAC is. An MFLAC is there to give you support on non-diagnosable, non-medical things. So, you know, if you have PTSD, don't go to the MFLAC. They can't. We can't talk to you. We can help you get help. But, you know, I can't be your therapist. So military people have that. You even, there are MFLACs in Hampton Roads. I just did a training. There were, I think there were 26 of us on the call. Most of them, like I think there were only six of us who were not going to be working in Hampton Roads. So Hampton Roads has put a lot of MFLACs into schools for military kids. And they're there for you to help you to hook you up to resources. Military people have resources that aren't always known to them. Like Military One Source, if you're active duty, or if you're a spouse of someone who's active duty, or if you're listening and you're a kid and your parent is active duty, you want to go on Military One Source, they have so much swag they want to give away. <laughs> and some of it's really nice. So you want to take advantage of that. So there's just things like that. I'm not really sure about diplomats. Um, not really sure. I don't think there's much out there for business kids as far as like there, there's a group that's there to support you. So military and missionary kids definitely have a lot more of supportive missionary because of member care and because we have a lot more counselors out there that have, or, you know, have a group that are there to help you or bring you over and house you for a while while you get help. And then your military kids have MFLAX along with your behavioral health that you can go to. So that's why I would be like, what are your resources? What's available to you? And if you don't know, well, again, I'm going to say it because I'm Gen X and we didn't have the internet until like, what, late 90s? And that was still like when Lucas was born, it was still dial up. <laughs> dial up. So, so I'm like, you have, a, you have access to things that I know I, in some ways those things make life harder. So one thing is, unfortunately, is that when you leave someplace, you get to see you're watching like sometimes live, like we're going on in real time, your friends going on with their life. That's really hard. I don't know that. As a kid growing up, that was not a reality. We did letters. So I had no idea what, if you told me you were sad, I'm like, oh, you're sad just like I am, you know, but you're out living it up with all your friends. And I don't know that's happening. And, and there's no place that we're sending pictures. I get pictures in an envelope. 
So it's much more difficult for millennials and Gen X or uh, Gen Zers and the next generation of children coming in of missionary kids because it's going to be harder to leave the place and move on to the next. And military kids, most of those kids move every three years. Diplomats, it's I think it's every two to four. Yeah. Right. So just when you're and it's a it's a three year rule. You need three years to get acclimated into a country. On all levels. That means your first or second year, you get sick all the time. Your third year, you're good to go. You know, we're at a shop, you know, you know, your barber. I don't know. Whatever is important to you, you got it all down by year three. Not well, poor diplomat kids. By the time they're just getting the hang of it, it's time to go again. So that's why we lean heavily on, but look at all of the wonderful experiences and cultures you got to see and live. I think you just opened up a whole resource side of things that I've known about because I've heard you talk about it so much <laughs> in all good ways and in our conversations. And I just never thought to really to, to kind of open up that side of things for the, when talking about military kids. And so thank you for bringing that in as a resource for all the uh, military kids out there who are listening. Um, yeah, go talk to your MFLAC. Uh, absolutely. Plus, you know, your MFLAC has got to make their numbers. <laughs> Didn't so, know that. Yeah, we got, we got a quota to make for the day. Um, but the, the really cool thing that I love about my two jobs. So I'm, so I don't know if Eugene knows I'm getting ready. I, I, I picked up my MFLAC badge again, so I'm going to go be an MFLAC for a while. Um, I love the job. I love the mission. Um, so it, it's, I get paid to talk to people. I get paid to be interested in other people's stories. I love that. My job as a missionary is I'm very invested in making sure that you're the best that you can be to complete the mission that you have. And missionaries either... Okay, the missionaries that I see are coming to me for help. So I'm not seeing the the like the toxic ones that cause all the problems. I hear about them, but they you don't come into my office or my virtual <laughs> office. Uh, so I'm just seeing the people that they wounded. So even growing up as a missionary and a pastor's kid, there were a lot of things that happened to our family that I saw happen to my dad, that I saw happen to my mom that were very hurtful. Again, it's Gen X. No one talks about it. Not, nobody talked about it then, right? Now it's different. Like now if somebody does that, like it's all over social media, right? So not in a Karen kind of way, but like in a, I'm going to call you out and hold you accountable. Like, a, you know, I'm going to say this too, Mars Hill, Jerry Jr. Like we're going to hold you accountable, behind the scenes at first. And then if you don't comply, now we're going to let everybody else know because you need to be held accountable. So that's different now than it was back then. Back then it was the leader of the organization, whatever the organization is, must be protected at all costs at the expense of the victims. That doesn't fly anymore. So back then there's a lot of us that are just wounded 
And some of us who've decided to go on and help, it's because of that woundedness, like kind of like not on my watch kind of thing. So that's one of the reasons why Ingo and I were, Ingo comes from, comes to it completely different. I'm coming to it from, I grew up this way. I experienced this and I want to make sure that I can make a change. Ingo comes to it as he became a Christian later in life. He had a passion for this. So he's coming to it from there, but he didn't experience in his childhood or teenage years, the Christian, I don't even know what to call that. It's the ugly side of Christianity. He didn't experience that. So in that sense, I look at myself coming into my 56th year now of everything I wanted to do. And I know I'm different. So don't, if you hear this, don't go, oh, I don't know what I'm going to do. You don't have to. I'm weird. It's, it's me. It's not, this is not normal. Um, and, and you shouldn't strive for it because <laughs> there's downsides to it. Okay. But at 17, I already knew what I wanted to do. So I already knew it. Plus, oh, and I should say this. Plus, at 17, my dad told me I couldn't do the other things that I wanted to do. So this was my option. So I couldn't be a pastor because Southern Baptist Convention didn't allow women. So that was off the table. I don't know why I wanted to be a pastor, but I did. And the other one was interior design. And my dad was like, nobody makes money with that. So I was like, okay, well, then the only thing I know how to do is listen to people. So I guess it's counseling. <laughs> so I'm at Liberty and I'm going to sign up for all these counseling classes. And he was like, no, you can't do that. He goes, you need to study psychology. And when I looked at the classes, I was like, this is boring. I don't want to know about the brain. And he goes, if you want to make money doing this, you need your psych degree, not a counseling degree. Because after you finish, Miha, then you're going to grad school. More school. Yeah. So anyway, I say all that. Look at your resources. And if, if anything that was said today and you're like, that's something that I want to end up doing, be a resource, a networker. I'm a resource or networker. And all the things that I do, that's always a key role in it. Because it's what I like to do. So just find out where that is and where you can make some money with it. And then you do what you want to do. Man, it's great hearing all these other than like nationality, cultural experiences, but as well as like socioeconomic and generational cultural influences that have shaped your life. Something that we like to ask a lot of our guests and something that I want to ask you is how is it, how do you feel like this has shaped your identity? And especially since you've gone to Germany and I noticed you talk about how it sounds like some of the churches operate with like a shame idea behind it how does this impact how do your values um also impact how you work with people that work at church so i would make a correction on that so i wasn't clear um the shame part is a cultural part but not in church or at least none of the churches that i ever went to there was never a shame part so the shame is more of like i'll give you an example our first year there, again, we're coming from the Valley, which um, like we just talked to Ingo, Katha and I talked to Ingo today. It hit 90 yesterday. It's January. <laughs> it's insane. So I'm walking Anika around and some lady 
decided that Annika was not dressed appropriately for the weather. So she stopped me. And so she called Muta, mother. Why is she not dressed warmer? I don't know who you are. Um, so, and now I'm going to have to have this conversation with you. Um, so it took me a while to get used to that of like, ex- what? <laughs> or the, the bakery lady. There's a whole game you have to play, right? So I'm, okay, so in Germany, you pay cash. Uh, maybe it's changed because I haven't been there since 2017. But you have to pay with cash, not with a card. If, so you always need to have cash on you. But it's not just paper money, okay? So Germany does the, you know, you have a two euro, which is like $2. You have a one euro, which is like $1, right? But they're coins. So everything that's a coin, you call little money, Kleingeld. Okay, so when you go and order something, and it's going to be five euro, 13 cents, you better have that 13 cents to the pin, to the finnig or whatever, I don't think they're called Phoenix anymore. I think that's the Deutsche Mark. So even if I knew I did not have the appropriate Kleingeld, I still need to open up that coin purse and fish around and then say I don't have it. Otherwise, I'm going to get at least a half a minute lecture on how, why don't you have it? Why aren't what did you not think you were going to like, didn't you not think you were going to come out today? Why did you even stand in this line if you knew you didn't have it? So you're going to get, you're going to get talked to like that. So there's that. And then in school, I noticed like one of Lucas's teachers was German. So this was in seventh grade. Cause that's when you had a German teacher. I can't remember his name now. And they had to bring so when you get graded for attend for class participation, okay, so in America, you are graded. If you show up, if you have physical education, you get graded if you show up in the proper attire, right? Not in Germany. No, you don't get graded for showing up. You need to participate. So first of all, you need to have all of your materials there. And they need to be the materials that I told you you needed to have. So Lucas had to have very specific things for this class. A pencil, a pen, some folder that was graded like weekly, but sometimes you could have a surprise grading on it. And then there was something else that he had to have, right? So you had to have that. I can't even remember what class this was, to be honest with you now. Um, So one time Lucas forgot something. So this could have either been an assignment or he forgot one of those things. And he was brought up to the front of the class and he had to explain to the class why he didn't have it. I don't remember that. Yeah. Annika had a similar situation in a science class. She went up and asked the teachers. I think she's in seventh grade too. Um, and asked, like, I didn't get the assignment. So the teacher told her to sit in her chair. And then she addressed the class and said, class, Annika did not understand the assignment. So we're going to help her do it now. This was not done in, a, oh, we're going to help her. It was not done that way. So Anika, <laughs> Anika talked to another older student and that older student in her class had put a petition. I said, this is a very German thing. Put a petition out and now we're going to submit that petition and call that teacher accountable. So when Anika was in sixth grade, fifth or sixth grade, 
They had a teacher, an American teacher, who was not very nice to a couple of the students. The students, no adult was involved. The students, this is fifth and sixth grade, got together and submitted a complaint. <laughs> a complaint to the principal about this teacher. And there was a huge mediation thing that was done. That's a, that's a German kid. They'll go on strike. The German kids will, the, so there's this, there's, there's wonderful things about it. And then there was other things that were just like, God, that's so harsh. So, but that's not in the churches. Churches are different, but you also have to know that we're in Berlin. So Berlin is a multicultural place. So you have, there's like, there's a lot of churches that are founded by South Africans. And I know one of the churches we went to, half of the people there were from Brazil. Um, I know Shaky, she was Korean. So they, there was a whole Korean organ, uh, congregation that, that we sometimes did things with because we used this communal building. And then there's Jewish or, uh, you know, groups there too. There's this communal building that we were in. And there was a Catholic church, a Jewish congregation, the Korean congregation, a Protestant faith Catholic, a Protestant faith church, and then um, Crossway, which was a Baptist church, me and Ingo had our offices in there, a violin teacher that we shared offices with, and a kita, all in the same place. So we all share space, which was really a beautiful thing. And this was, this was the saying, to be together in conflict, that's German. Not to be together in harmony, that's how we Americans would say it. But to be together in conflict, to live together in conflict. Okay. So in that sense, how did it shape my identity? So I would say for myself that my core identity has been extremely fragile because of my upbringing. Um, and as, as I have experienced all of this, and I, I am going to, I'm going to make another plug for EMDR. It was with EMDR, like, and I will say, I've been in therapy on and off since I was 22. I have tried everything short of like ketamine, hypnosis, right? Like I would never, I would never do ketamine or MMD. There's no way I'm not doing that. Um, Hypnosis was already a bit too iffy for me. So I was like, I'm not going to do that either. But I did all the, I've done Jungian. I've done Gestalt. I've done some scream therapy. I thought scream therapy was weird. So I think I did it once and I was like, I'm not going to do that again. I, so I've done all these different types of therapy. I've seen different types of therapists and nothing has helped except for EMDR. So, and there was even... Before I heard of EMDR, I had come to a place where I was like, this will be your life. You are going to forever struggle with anxiety like this. It's just going to be. And once I started EMDR, I was like, wait a minute. So, and I will say this. So, so my paranoia, that thing that I'm always like distrusting of people, that saved my life as a kid. When did I start doing that? Uh, four saved my life. My people pleasing chameleon part saved my life. I'll tell you whatever you want to hear as long as I don't get hit. That works for me. So it saved my life and it saved my siblings. So 
what I have seen as like these maladaptive, awful parts of me and then take it to a Christian place of I'm spiritually unhealthy because I don't trust people. I'm spiritually unhealthy because I want to make people happy so they're not upset with me. So I'm not going to say what I want. And so I'm somehow not living Christ-like because I, because Christ was a badass. I'm sorry, but like when he's floating up in his boat and he sees all those people there on the shore, he said, turn this thing around. That's what he said. And then when the children are all up in his lap and talking to him and the disciples are being all like, oh my gosh, you can't bug him. He's like, you should be like this. So he was amazing. And I always wanted to be like that. I'm I'm too scared. People aren't going to like me. And then I would try to explain that to a therapist and say, when people don't like me, I feel like I'm going to die. And they were like, Capri, you're so dramatic. Okay, you just told a Latina woman that she's dramatic. So you've completely discounted me by my gender and my race. So there's a part of me that's like, you know, I'm never, what I feel must be all made up in my head. When I started doing EMDR, I was like, so everything that I have shamed myself is actually what has gotten me this far. I'm going to honor that. And by doing that, I'm not as paranoid. And if I don't feel comfortable around somebody, I'm going to leave. And if I hurt their feelings and it turns out that they weren't the pedophile that I thought they were, then I can apologize. But at the time, like, I'm getting a weird vibe. So I'm going to take care of myself. I'm going to leave. I would never have done that before. Ever. So EMDR to me is this changed my life. I want everybody to experience it. I'm hearing some finding worth in your ability to cope and deal and navigate through life and seeing the other side of the benefits of these tools and how it's made you stronger and the worth and value of that that's shaped like who you are. Not only that, but I'm sure you've experienced that at some point. But when you're talking to somebody who has trauma and you tell them to honor that part that they've been trying to get rid of for so long and they realize that I've been doing that since I was three or four and that's what saved my life and you see the paradigm shift. That, we, the other part I love about EMDR, I don't have to do much. The biggest thing is get out of the way. Shut up and get out of the way. And just just be there. By by that you mean as a therapist you don't have to do much. Or are you saying as a client? Okay, I'm going to say both. Okay, cuz that's what I was thinking. Doing cognitive behavioral and dialectical behavioral as a client is hard. Oh my gosh. I don't know about you guys. So this is me as a client. Okay. So we're going to do cognitive. You ever do the ABCs, right? Oh, I hate that. Hate that. Okay. So rational, you know, whatever. All my thoughts are irrational. Okay. Let's just start there. That's what I always wanted to go was like, all right, I'm fucked up. You're going to ask me to tell you an irrational thought. I'm going to tell you. Then you're going to tell me to come up with a rational thought. And I'm going to, cause I know what it is. But even though I know better, 
I'm going to live in the irrational thought because not knowing then that's what my body's doing. So it doesn't matter what I think. You cannot think yourself out of a traumatic response. You're not going to do it. It's not going to happen. So being in all of those sessions where I'm being forced to do that while what's going on inside in my body is I'm screaming. I'm scared to death. And I don't believe that rational thought. And so th- I don't know. I don't know if you guys have had these talks. I know I have clients sitting across from me and saying, I know. So in- cognitively, I know that God loves me, but I can't receive that. I'm not worth it. There's nothing you can tell me. And as a therapist, without EMDR or any of the somatic approaches, <laughs> which I did for many years of like, okay, I'm going to do my best to talk you out of it. <laughs> it's never going to happen. And I would sit there and go, why am I arguing? Which is what I think a lot of people came because I was like, you know what? I completely understand. I have thought like that too. I can't get rid of it. Capri, are you saying we're going to have to live like this? And I'm like, okay, so we're going to take this from DBT. Radical acceptance. I radically accept that this is the way my brain is going to think for the rest of my life. Because I didn't know what else to do. Now you have EMDR, EFT, trauma-focused yoga. Okay, the ketamine, if you want to go there. Um, neurofeedback. What is it? Electro. Stimulation. Right. You've got, we've got all these other things we can do. So I can now, I can, by focusing on my breath, are doing polyvagal, deep pressure tissue, like this right here. You can't see what I'm doing, but I'm literally holding out my arm, so my, my left arm, and I'm taking my right hand, making it into a fist, and on the inside of my arm, I'm just going to start from my elbow, and I'm just going to hit it gently with my fist to my wrist and back again. I'm just going to do that a couple times. I'm going to do the other arm, and just go back there. So what I'm doing there is somatic. So I just had surgery a week and a half ago. I had a panic attack after surgery. I haven't had a full-blown panic attack in years. I was like, I know what's happening. So the, focusing on the somatic, so there's, there's three things you can do. Number one is movement. And I'm going to say this, it's not movement like go take a run or go fast walk or any of that dumb crap that you think or what people say. It makes me so angry when someone says to a depressed person, you need to go exercise. Lady, if I could do that, do you not think I wouldn't have done that already? So these kinds of like ridiculous things, I'm just like, I'm done. I'm done with therapists who do stuff like that. I don't do them. And I've apologized to all my clients. All the dumb things that I've said to you, I apologize for them all right now. We're going to read. I'm, I'm going to see you for half the price, whatever, to make up for what I've done wrong. Um, okay. So one is movement. The movement can be just putting your arm up. By the way, this movement, putting both hands over your head, this is the most vulnerable movement we can do. And this is what we do when we're going out for a hug. If you can do this in front of people, you're extremely balanced. That's great. So movement can just be like, I'm just going to move my arm out, get up, sit down, movement. Because when the trauma occurred, whether it's perceived or real, 
you couldn't move. And what I mean is your perception or reality of not being able to move. So maybe you could have moved and you didn't think you could. Because when we're talking about developmental trauma, we're talking about stuff that happened to you when you were little. So you can't move. So if you just do a small movement, you've already changed it. That's number one. So you're saying when the person is experiencing a traumatic trigger in the moment, do a small movement because at the time of the trauma, when we were a child or however old, we are in a fight or flight or freeze, most of us probably froze. And in that, in that freeze, we're experiencing that same thing in the present. So do a movement. Correct. Any movement. Right. Okay. And again, so your brain is going to go, this is stupid, but your body's screaming. So you need to listen. So it's body awareness. Most of us that have developmental trauma, whether there was physical or sexual abuse, and I'm assuming maybe, I'm going to say for all of it. So that's emotional, um, any kind of neglect that you had, you have to truncate. So meaning most of us who have developmental trauma, we're in our head all the time. So if you ask me, and Eugene, I bet you this was true because it's mostly true for all of us who don't do any somatic approach. So if we're all head, when they asked us in EMDR training, where do you notice that in your body? What? And then when you're asked by your trainer, Every time my trainer would say, Capri, where do you notice them? I, he was like, you're cussing me out in your head, aren't you? And I'm like, yes, because I didn't want to cry today. Because you're asking me to get in touch with things that I don't want to get in touch with. So I am cut off at my neck. Don't ask, where do I feel things? I don't know. My chest, my stomach, my shoulders feel tight. That's where we're going to start. I have a headache. That's where we're going to start. Because those are the easy ones, right? And then you get, the more you notice it, which noticing is to just to be curious, just be curious about it. Don't push it, nothing, just be curious. Just be really gentle. Like you would with you're a little kid. You're talking to a little kid, you're gonna be nice. So the, the other two things are focusing on your breath. Whatever breath works for you. I have a client, hyperventilating works for him. Totally works for him. I heard your hyperventilating story I told somebody else that and they were like, oh my gosh, Capri, that works for me. I'm like, then do that. Whatever breathing technique works for you, you do that. Because when you're focused on your breath and you're not focusing on what's going on in your head, your whole thing is just focusing on your breath will slow it down. When you slow your breath down, your heart rate's gonna slow down, everything else is gonna slow down. So I'm gonna come to a stasis. Will it be peaceful? No because you're traumatized, so no. So don't let anybody tell you that, oh, it needs to be like this. No, it doesn't. You don't know my body. You don't know what I've lived through. This is my stasis, which might look really uptight to you. I don't care. It's the, that's the closest thing I can come to calm. And the last thing is the polyvagal, which is the deep pressure, but there's so much more than just what I did. There's so much more in polyvagal, but it's all body. So you're not thinking yourself out of anything. So the identity question for me comes late in life because I let other things identify me. I let 
people's racist ideas identify who I am growing up in the 70s and the 80s as a Latina whose parents were raising me as a white girl. <laughs> well, I'm clearly not white. Um, so there was that struggle. And then there was a spiritual struggle of uh, because, and I'm sure a lot of people can get to this, but look, there's a lot of things that were taught to me in church that were developmentally inappropriate. Why are we talking about abstract things to kindergartners? Why? So when there's a song, gee, uh, God has a cattle on 10,000 hills. I don't know how old I am, but I clearly picture myself sitting in my little chair and praying and saying, God, you have a thousand cattle. Can you sell one and give us the money? That was my prayer. I look at that. It's funny, but it's also like, that's sad. <laughs> really sad. I was convinced, I was convinced that God was going to strike me dead somehow if I did not make amends with somebody that I had secretly thought something negative about before taking the Lord's Supper. So I would go to people and say, I'm sorry, I had a bad thought about you. I thought you were dumb. That caused so much drama. I remember sitting there going, you know what, Jesus, I'm not going to do it today. So today I die, I die. And nothing happened and nothing happened a week later until the next time it's time to do the Lord's Supper because Baptists do it once a month. I mean, they maybe do it different now, but that's the way it was then. And nothing happened. And I was like, so I'm not going to die. So it's okay. So identity for me has been a process of coming to terms with things. But the beautiful part was EMDR and embracing things that I have for years thought were ungodly, unhealthy, maladaptive, and realizing that those things are beautiful in the right time and used in the right way. You don't want to use them all the time, but you want to hold on to them. Thank you. I think... That was a great way to kind of come to a close in this podcast for us. One, because this is probably the longest <laughs> podcast we've done. And technically, we could keep going because there's, I know there's so much more to kind of unpack. And we didn't even have to ask questions. <laughs> I was that, kidding. That's the implant job. That's the implant in a therapist. That's the best part. <laughs> Just hearing your story and your experiences. And thanks so much for sharing with us your insights. I know that you've had a lot of experience in the mission field as a clinician and working with peoples of all sorts of cultures and really embracing that conflict too in that in that um, in that space in Berlin. It sounds like there's a bunch of different cultures that you guys had to learn how to assimilate with and like navigate, especially coming at, with different values. So we greatly appreciate having you on our podcast and sharing your insights. Well, thank you for having me. I've been wanting to be a guest since you started. So, Yes, and now you are. And for all those who are listening, uh, we thank you. We hope you gained some um, you know, good insight from everything that was talked about. Uh, if you want to you know, tap into some more resources, Eugene uh, and I and all everybody that we know, including Capri and, and my father and then <laughs> everybody else. Um, 
we all have a lot of resources that part of us that I think makes us enjoy our job is being able to offer those resources because not everybody always knows that they're out there or available. So in that line, email us at theculturedchameleon at gmail.com or hit us up on our Instagram at theculturedchameleon. Um, we'd love to connect with you there. Uh, and we thank you for all those who have stuck with us so far and been listening. I think Eugene wants to share one more thing. No, just reinforcing that contact us, let us know your thoughts on the podcast. And in general, if you have any questions, anything you'd like to know more about, anything that you wanted to know more about uh, with regards to Capri, her story, um, or the culture chameleon, or how to get those resources, we're happy to share. If for those that want to be on the podcast and share their experiences, we're happy to have you guys as well. Um, and keep a lookout. We'll be having a Patreon soon. So that's something to look forward to. And thank you for listening. Peace. Peace. Peace.